your word. I pray that we would truly see what we need to see. And Lord, that we would hear from you through your truth. I pray, Lord, that you'd open up our eyes and Lord, you'd help us to see the beauty of Christ. Lord, help us to see our need of him. Help us to learn through the life of Elijah and Ahab. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. We, we have been walking through the book of 1 Kings, and um, we've had about a two-week break here um, where we haven't been looking at it. Um, but what we're doing is we're, we're seeing the history of Israel, and we're going from all the way back to the united monarchy to a split of the kingdom, and we're seeing that in Israel, we see no godly kings. In Judah, we only see eight godly kings out of 20. And um, just in these last few chapters that we've been in, coming up to chapter 16, we've been looking at the end of Jeroboam's life and Rehoboam. We looked at Abijam and Asa. And now in chapter 15, we, we started with Nadab. And it comes all the way down to Ahab. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a message entitled, Living as a Vessel for God's Glory. Living as a Vessel for God's Glory. Because as we move into this section, we're going to be looking at two primary figures, really three. We're going to be looking at a man named Ahab. We're going to be looking at his notorious wife, Jezebel. We're going to be learning about a man that God used mightily, that if you had any experience in church growing up, you heard about the ministries of a man named Elijah and a man named Elisha. Well, the text now is going to be in chapter 17. We're going to be moving into the ministry of Elijah. So we're, we've got so many things that are happening here, but, but what we're going to be doing today, we're just going to focus on chapter 17. I was going to go further than that, but... Um, I, I, I finally realized that that wasn't going to be doable. And what we're going to be looking at is, is focusing on Elijah. We're going to have an introduction to Ahab. And, and next week, we're going to be looking at the, the famous story on Mount Carmel, where we see the prophets of Baal, and we see Elijah. And we see this showdown, so to speak, of, of Elijah putting on display not only the foolishness of pagan gods and pagan deities, but the power of Yahweh, the power of the God of Israel. And so this morning, as we begin, I want us to be thinking about this because we're going to see in the life of Elijah a man that lived as a vessel for God's glory. And we're going to see a man that God used powerfully, and we're going to see how God's grace was demonstrated through his life. Look at verse 29 of chapter 16. We read in verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. 22 years this man reigned, and in verse 30, we begin to get a sense of... Uh, this was a destructive time in the life of the nation. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice that last phrase there in verse 30. More than all who were 
before him. And if you've been with us in, in just the prior section that we were looking at in chapter 15 into chapter 16, we are looking at an amazing amount of wickedness on display. We are seeing idolatry. We are seeing a, a disobedient, rebellious spirit in the lives of so many of these leaders that to say about a particular leader that they did more evil than all who were before him is astounding. It's significant. We read in verse 31, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Amazing verse. Like, here's a man whose evil stands on its own two feet, so to speak. But to imagine that a man this wicked went after a woman as wicked as Jezebel. I tell you, it's amazing, isn't it, how evil finds evil. You ever notice that? It's sad, and, and it's, it's heartbreaking, and, and I think if, if we see the gospel in light of those observations, we see our, but by the grace of God, so would we go the same way. But it, it's amazing to me, like uh, people that are involved in evil and people that are involved in wickedness will find each other. They will find each other anywhere, in any city, in any town, they will find each other. And what's amazing here is, it's another example, you know... The people we associate with have such an influence on our spiritual lives. And, and sadly here, Ahab and Jezebel were poison for one another. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, and if you look at her name, E-T-H-B-A-A-L, what's that represent? She's the daughter of an individual whose name came from this pagan idol. The king of the Sidonians. Ethbaal, her daddy, was the king of the Sidonians. And, and what happened? And went and served Baal and worshipped him. Throughout this storyline, we're looking at, okay, you got people either walking in the ways of God or walking in evil. And, and it's, it's a reminder to us because if we're not careful, we're just going to get removed from the storyline. And be like, oh, what did you do today? Well, we studied about, you know, these kings in the life of Israel, and we sort of just observe it, and we learn some interesting facts, and we talk about the characters. But I want to ask you a question. If your life was summed up right now over this last year, how would it describe your walk? Are you walking in the ways of God? Are you walking according to the flesh? Are you walking in the ways of the world? It's a really interesting question because sometimes the way we assume it is far from the reality because we're looking here throughout this storyline of the nation of Israel. We're seeing a remnant. We're seeing the grace of God in the midst of Israel's rebellion, but we're seeing individuals marked by the grace of God that walked against the grain. They walked against the culture. They walked against the movement of the day. It's important to see this 
Because if we don't understand a little bit of the background, we'll not really get what's happening in this passage. It's interesting because uh, I found this quote helpful in, in one commentary. But Jezebel was not satisfied with the prerogative of private worship. Rather, she insisted on attempting to promote Baal as a replacement for Yahweh and took steps to silence opposition to her goals. Her successes, and notice that, successes, moved Israel beyond the tolerance of high places and syncretism to outright worship of another god. You see, it's been moving. They've tolerated it. It's been moving along where we'll worship Yahweh, but we've got these high places. We'll worship Yahweh, but we've got the Asherah. We've got all of these background keys and signs that point to this divided heart of the nation. But now we're going to a place where through the life of Ahab and Jezebel, they want to outright replace the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. And it's in this backdrop that you begin to see Elijah emerge. It's important to see. Verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Verse 33, and Ahab made an Asherah, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He provoked the Lord to anger. If we could just understand that the serious nature of the holiness of God, that Jesus is not an add-on to our life, to give us a better life, to give us more contentment, or to make our lives more joyful. But we are literally hanging in the balance of the wrath of God. And we have provoked a holy God to anger. And there's nothing in our own work, in our own way, that can earn the favor of God. It Really, passages like this help us to see why is it so significant that in the midst of the rebellion of the nation that God left a light in Jerusalem for the promised one that would come through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that one of the things we learn as we go through the book of 1 Kings is that we would see, wait a minute, this problem is nasty. This problem is severe. This is not just simple mistakes. This is not just, you know, errors of their way. This is people that have provoked the Lord to anger. And you say, wait a minute, that's not the kind of God I want to serve. Well, you got to remember something. Maybe your frustration with that type of concept is a misunderstanding of the holiness of God. He can't look upon sin. He's holy and perfect righteousness. And yet what we see is in the midst of a statement where God's anger is being literally demonstrated in his, he's being provoked to anger, we see the backdrop as Christians of the glorious redemption that's in Jesus Christ. I tell you, it really is. I mean, it's a great way to introduce the Christmas season because all we like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the gospel goodness of grace, it's not a message that, hey, try harder, live a better life, go to church more, be more ethical, be a good person. It's the realization, no, you've provoked a holy God to anger And the only solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes as the perfect son of David to rescue us. But here Ahab has provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. We read a sad verse in verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What a sad passage. The, the nation has drifted so far that they literally have mocked the ways of a holy God. You see, to understand this, we have to read Joshua 6.26. Notice this passage. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho, at the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up his gates. That didn't deter Hiel of Bethel, but you know what it did? It cost him his sons. He played around with the holy righteousness of God. And he was judged in a way of severity. As a result, everything seems to be... I mean, if we're watching a series of this right now, and this is the end of the episode, wow, can it get any worse? This is bad stuff. This this, this is horrible. The people of God have literally rebelled against him. They've rebelled against him to the point they're being judged by their very leaders. But God's not done with Israel. God is a God who keeps his word. God is a God who keeps his promise. He continues his fulfillment in the midst of the backdrop of sin. And now as we come into the prophet Elijah, we're going to see how God works through a willing vessel enabled by grace. Some things that are important to note here immediately. We we get in and we see in verse 1 of chapter 17, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I love that. There's not a lot of introduction. There he is. Elijah the Tishbite. And and, and what do we see starting out here? We immediately have to ask ourselves, where do we see Elijah in the Bible? Where do we see him? You know, we we see so many different things. We could go to the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And along with Jesus, who appeared physically, who else appeared? Moses and Elijah. We could go to the Gospels where Jesus asked 
the disciples, who do men say that I am? And remember the response, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Why would they think that Jesus could have potentially been Elijah? Because there was this reference in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. In Malachi 4, verse 5, it's interesting, we learn later on, this is you know several hundred years before the New Testament, but much later than the death of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And, and most scholars believe that what, what is happening here is that this is fulfilled in the ministry of a man named John the Baptist. He, we read in Luke 1.17, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for a Lord a prepared people. And I show you these references only to say Elijah is mentioned throughout the Bible. We find a passage in James that I want to encourage you with as we get started here. In James 5.17, look what it says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. One of my favorite parts of looking at the life of Elijah is the shocking first phrase of verse 17 here. Do you find that to be a little like, whoa? I mean, we can look at Elijah like he's Superman. We can look at Elijah like he jumps out of a phone booth. But Elijah is a man that's simply a vessel. He's no different than we are. He, he's a man that is in need of the same redemption that we're in need of. He's a man that's in need of the grace of Jesus no different than we are. But we see that Elijah was used by God. And we're going to examine his life this morning from chapter 17. And when I was thinking about his life and thinking about how we see God's glory manifested in this servant, it reminded me, of a passage that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And one thing we're going to learn as we move into Elijah and the confrontation that he has with Ahab and the, the turmoil that he experiences with Jezebel, we're going to learn that this is a guy who didn't just coast through his ministry. This is a man that went through intense suffering, persecution. He felt very isolated. And it reminds me of a similar testimony of the life of Paul because it says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always, that's not the way I wanted to do that verse up there, sorry. <laughs> I'll read it to you. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Now listen to this. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And here's what I want to encourage you with. As we look at Elijah, we're going to look at a man, God's man, his servant, and we're going to see an example of a vessel that God uses for his glory. This morning, 
I want to explore with you several different characteristics of this. God used Elijah to demonstrate his glory. And we're going to see several ways that he used Elijah to demonstrate his glory throughout this story. And, and again, we see these passages. We're reminded of God's grace. But who is this guy? Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead. There's people that debate even to where this is. I tell you, I was encouraged by this because I was thinking, okay, this man from Tishbe and Gilead is now being used by God in a marvelous, magnificent way. Have you you heard this? This is easy to say. Um, I've got a lot of kids, so it's easy for me to say this. I'll talk to people, and they'll be like, oh, I'm just so overwhelmed at the day that we live in. Our kids are going to grow up in this culture. And they say it almost like, you know, why don't we just put them, you know, like put them in a hole somewhere and give them like water and bread and soup, canned soup, and maybe they can get through this life. But be encouraged, friend. We all are tempted to think that way. We're all tempted to be overwhelmed. But be encouraged that while the height of, of all of these things are happening in the background, God is at work. God is at work. And I don't know it doesn't tell us explicitly here But Elijah was born in a family, and little did he know that God's grace was going to shine through him in a culture that had gone the wrong way. I tell you, teenagers, you live in an exciting time. You live in an exciting time, but, but in order to live in a way that follows the Lord, we have to see here that the way that God calls you to live is to be an empty vessel used for his glory that takes your marching orders from Christ, that walks according to his word. And Elijah is going to stand in the face of incredible opposition against a ruthless leader named Ahab, against a horrible, wicked woman named Jezebel, and God is going to be glorified through him. He was a Tishbite. Tishbe and Gilead on the map here, if it's uh, working, the screens are having trouble this morning. So that map's pretty cool if you could see it, but you can't. The, uh, <laughs> that Tishbe, it, when we look at, it's over here. Okay, over thanks, Anita. Anita gave me a hand signal. Tishbe's up there. We'll see where we're at. I hope I don't make the speakers go off here. You see it up there up by Sidon. Tishbe's over here at the bottom right. In a moment, we're going to see this place called Zarephath where Elijah is going to minister to a widow. It's all the way up there at the top near Sidon. And you get an idea here. I love this. This little bitty place called Tishbe, a place that probably not many scholars even really agree where it's at. They think that's where it's at, but it's not a notable place. And here's where we are. And in the midst of this, what happens is God is going to be glorified through Elijah. Uh, Several different ways we see God's glory manifested through Elijah. The first way we're going to look at this morning is God is glorified in calling vessels to show his power. He calls vessels to show his power. People that would be marginalized in the world's eyes, but God's grace works through people. And he works through people because he's a gracious God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. 
If it's up to us, if it's about our abilities and about our talents, you know what? I was watching a football, football games all day yesterday, and, and, and isn't it amazing? It's changed even over the last 30 years, and we all like to watch it because it's fun. It's athleticism. These guys are great athletes. But look at the showmanship. Are these guys humble for the most part? No. It's all about me. It's flexing. It's looking at your opponent. But here's the thing. If Christianity worked in the same way, it wouldn't be about the glory of Jesus. It would be about our ability. It'd be nothing more than me showing you up with the gifts that I have. But here's the beauty of the gospel of grace. God takes the weak things of the world to confound the strong. You see, here he is. I love 2 Chronicles, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. And apart from his grace, that does not happen. And and what we find is Elijah is an example. And and here he is, a man from Tishbe, a man that is going to come literally onto the pages of Scripture where there's no any kind of introduction I love 1 Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God calls people. I, I was reading, uh, he calls Elijah's. I, I was thinking about in America, a very dark day in our country in the mid to late 1800s. And a lot of historians say that the only explanation as to why the last 120 years have even had theism involved in the heart of America is because of an event that took place in U.S. history called the Second Great Awakening. It was the only explanation historians can come up with as to why there was a movement of God in the 1900s. And yet it was at a very dark time. It was at a very intellectual time in the country. It was at a time when people had revolted and turned from God. But what did God do? God brought Men, he used women, he raised them up for his glory in the midst of a culture. When we look at the life of Elijah, we're reminded how God works in the midst of darkness. He's glorified in calling vessels to show his power. I was thinking about how God works in mysterious ways. And and I probably don't have time to share this, but I want to share it with you. Um, There's a story that one of my favorite conversion stories was the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. And there he was, and it was in a snowstorm. And he was in a snowstorm, and he was going to a certain place of worship. He turned down a side street, and he came to a little primitive Methodist church. He said in that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. He said in his stories that I'd heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. (laughs) But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. Here he is. I was thinking about, you know, a big snowstorm. He's walking to church. He's walking to church, and he ends up in this little bitty place. You may be here today thinking, man, I've never been to a church this small. Well, that church was smaller than this one, 12 to 15 people. 
And he walks in, and there he is. And he goes on to explain that the minister really wasn't that impressive at all. He says he really didn't do much at all that was really impressive, and he really didn't even preach that well. But it says there in the story that the preacher starts, and it says, this is a very simple text. He's reading out of Isaiah 45 that said, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And the man opened the text, and Charles Spurgeon's sitting there, you know, in a room of 12 people. It's snowing outside. And he says there, the man just simply said, he says, look. He says, now looking don't take a lot of pain or a, lot, a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. And then he goes on. He said, the preacher said, well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. In the midst of this man's simple presentation, the words of Isaiah 45 strangely moved Charles Spurgeon. And that morning in that primitive Methodist church in the middle of a snowstorm, England was about to get one of its greatest preachers. Why? Was it the wisdom of men? No, it was the foolishness of Man, that through the foolishness of man, the power and the wisdom of God might be revealed. I want you to be encouraged because I'm with you. Don't get me wrong. I I see some of the ways and some of the things we vote for as a country, and it grieves me. I see some of the wickedness on display. And yet when we look at this, be careful not to get into a defensive, caustic, cynical, sarcastic attitude, but let your faith and your trust be in the God who fulfills his promises. God is not mocked. His ways are sure. And when we look at the story of Ahab and we look at the call of Elijah, we're reminded that God calls people to demonstrate his power. He calls people to demonstrate his power in the midst of times where it just looks impossible. Another thing I think we see here is not only is God glorified in calling vessels to show his power, but God is supreme over all. When we look at Elijah and we want to study his ministry and his life, that God brings him on the scene while King Ahab is leading Israel, and we see the Baal, and we see Jezebel, and we see the idolatry, this really helped me in my study One article said that it's key to understand that the Baal of Ahab and Jezebel was a storm god. Now understand that. You may be thinking, why is that significant? Well, it's going to get really significant. Because in chapter 17, what does Elijah tell Ahab? He says, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, isn't that interesting? Because they claim to serve the storm God. And that wouldn't make sense. If somebody was proclaiming the way of Yahweh, the God of Israel, how would the storm God be insulted by a rival? But here, God is using Elijah to demonstrate his power. You see, they had to come up with an explanation as to why there would be seasons where it didn't rain. And so the Baal worshipers believed something really strange. 
they, they had to explain why he could not guarantee rain, and there would be times where there was no rain, so they came up with this type of interpretation. They said that Baal submitted to Mot, the god of death, each year, which caused drought and barrenness to the land. And there was this exchange between the storm god and the god of death that allowed there to be this strange usage of like water on display with rain. And it's going to be interesting because God is going to raise up Elijah not only to demonstrate that he is the god over rain, but he's also going to raise the widow's son to demonstrate that he's the God over death. And he uses this just like the plagues that you see in Egypt. Every one of the plagues corresponded with a false Egyptian God. And all of this is demonstrating the glory of God. God uses his people to show the futility of human means, the futility of man-made gods, to show that he alone is worthy to be praised. That's comforting. Be encouraged as we study the life of Elijah. We live in a culture that has many idols. And, and there's many idols, and, and everyone is a worshiper of something. There's no worship-neutral people. Even people that deny God's existence, they're worshipers of something. But yet, in the midst of all of this idolatry, even in the world we live in today in 2022, in the midst of all of what's taking place around the globe, God uses servants, he uses empty vessels, and through them, he demonstrates that he is supreme over all in the life of his servants. Another way that we see God's glory on display here is that God keeps his word. God keeps his word. He can be trusted, and we learn that through Elijah's life. Here's a man from Tishbe. His life points us to following God because his life is a testimony that God can be trusted. If you spent time with Elijah, based on what we read in the text, he was a man that wholeheartedly believed that God's word was true and it could be trusted. And in his life as a servant, it demonstrated the glory of God that God indeed was trustworthy. When we look at this, you may be thinking, why is that? Look at chapter 17. How could Elijah say this? Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, now that's a powerful statement. And as the more we get into the chapter, at the end of chapter 17 and into chapter 18 next week, you're going to see that Ahab was very intimidating. To the point to where one of his servants, a guy by the name of Obadiah, Obadiah was nervous when he had an encounter with Elijah in chapter 18 because he's like, oh boy, I've got to go reveal this to Ahab. And he's thinking he may lose his life. But now he's making these bold declarations. Where's his confidence? Is this just a bravado of a young prophet who's energetic? No, this is a man who believes wholeheartedly in the promises of God, and he believes that God's word is to be trusted. And in his life, as he lives in real time, the culture is seen through a man, the glory of God displayed, that God can be trusted. I love this. And the reason why we see this is because Elijah knew the Bible. Deuteronomy said what? 
Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. I came across this explanation of verse 1 through Dr. Merida, and, and I think he's right on the money here. I think what's happening is, is that Elijah was bold and strong in this declaration because he wholeheartedly believed that God's word was true. And he knew that the storm God, Baal, was a fraud. And he knew that God would honor his word. And he knew that God was going to speak the truth. And so what happens is, is that not only is God glorified in calling vessels to show his power, not only is God showing through Elijah that he is supreme over all, but God keeps his word. I went through a search on 1 Kings and just looked for everywhere that the word of the Lord, 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 because that's what it says here, even in the opening verses. It's used a ton of times. And every time that it's used, the one thing that you can take to the bank is that whatever it says happens. The word of the Lord is true. The word of the Lord is true. So when the word of the Lord comes to somebody, what happens in the events that follow reveal that the word of the Lord is accurate, firm, true, reliable, and trustworthy. And friend, in our life as Christians, as we trust in not only the word of God, but the God of the word, our lives become reflections of the trustworthiness of God. And I'll tell you, what better place to shine that truth than in a culture that is wondering and has no bearings spiritually? If you live amongst people who are serving false gods, they need the truth of the living God. And God calls his people to be light in the midst of that culture as to his trustworthiness. Elijah serves as a great example. Another reality and another way that God's glory is on display through Elijah, is that God meets our needs. God meets our needs. When we get into chapter 17, look at verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Seems like a very basic, simple lesson. But when we look at Elijah, we are reminded that God meets our needs. And in fact, what we're going to see is that Elijah is going to be sent to a woman of Zarephath, a widow. And as she goes to the widow of Zarephath, he is going to ask her to literally feed him. And the woman in verse 9, it says in verse 10, I mean, so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. 
And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. I mean, this is really pushing her faith, isn't it? You've got one, you know, one, one piece of bread left, two pieces of bread, and he's saying, hey, give me some first. But what happens? First make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah, again, what do you see? The word of the Lord is sure. He can be trusted, but we also see in this principle of chapter 17, 1 through 7, and chapter 17, 8 through 16, that God is faithful to meet his people's needs. God is faithful to meet his people's needs. I don't know about you, but you'd think preachers would have that one down in their own personal experience, but I find myself sometimes foolishly doubting the promises and the provision of God. Anybody else with me in here? Sometimes I'm tempted to think that I have more security because of credit, credit cards, because of insurance, because of a paycheck, because of health, it's pretty good, because of all these other things. And yet what we learn from the life of Elijah is that God is the one who meets our needs. God is the one who sustains us. God is the one who provides for us. We can learn so much here. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4 says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Isn't it comforting to think that there's nothing that you will face in this lifetime that is outside of the provision that you have in Jesus Christ? There's nothing that you will face where God will not be faithful to keep his word. And we read this in so many different places. Psalm 23 speaks of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's the one who takes care of me is a good summary of what follows. In Matthew 6, 11, Jesus instructs after giving the most wonderful beginning as to how we ought to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He turns right around and shockingly, the God over the universe asks individuals to pray for their daily needs. I told you once the early church didn't even believe that that was physical bread they were praying for in Matthew 6, 11, because they found it shocking that the God of the universe would then turn around and ask people to pray for their daily bread. But God is the one who meets our needs. He met Elijah's need by the brook. He gave him two meals a day, and he was faithful to meet this, this, this woman from Zarephath who was a widow who had a son, he was faithful to meet her needs. And just in the little of faith that she displayed in believing in the God of Elijah, God worked and demonstrated his provision. Again, what what are you facing today? What are you facing? Be reminded, God is the one who sustains our lives, and he's the one who will sustain us. He's the one that will carry us. He's the one that's allowing you to breathe right now. He's the one that's keeping everything working in your body right now. Your your, your life could be just like his mind could, a house of cards. And why isn't it falling apart right now? Because the God of the universe is sustaining you even to be here and listen to me. 
as long-winded as I can be. There you are, and we are all here, and I'm standing here only because of the grace of God and his sustaining power. Amen? Elijah teaches us that. His life is a demonstration of that. we got to hurry. We're almost done. Another way that God's glory is seen here is not only that God is glorified in calling vessels to show his power, not only in God is supreme over all, God keeps his word. God meets our needs. But number five, God sees the outsider. Wait a minute. A lot of people, when they have a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, I thought the Old Testament was a book for the Jews and the book for Israel. But where does God see fit to call Elijah here? You've got this, this man from Tishbe, and you've got this woman from Zarephath. That's in Sidon. She's a Gentile. In verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Here's a man that's simply acting as a vessel. He's a servant. And just through his obedience, and just through his servanthood, we are learning about these amazing characteristics of who our God is. I pray that that would encourage us today. How might God shine through you as you submit to him to reveal his glory around the people in your midst? And he goes to this woman and it reveals something that God sees her, where she is, Wouldn't you love to see the scene of Elijah rolling into Zarephath and coming into this widow's house? Can you imagine? You don't know what's going on. She's a widow. She's been through pain in her life. She's got a precious son. He comes in, and, and what happens, Jesus mentions this woman. And this is one way we ought to raise our eyebrows, because Wait a minute, you mean in the life and the ministry of Jesus, he brings up this story? Absolutely, Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, it's when the people of Nazareth were rejecting Christ. It's the one where, I wish we had another hour today, but don't worry. It's when he goes into the synagogue, he opens up the place of the book where the scroll was, and he reads, and he reads this passage. And you've got to imagine, they're all sitting there looking at Jesus. And he opens up the scroll, and, 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 he, and he opens and founds the place where it's written, the, and Jesus is there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And listen to this. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And it says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, now notice this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. But then it goes on. He says something that makes them really mad. 
It says next, and all this, all, they all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? <laughs> and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, now here he goes. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And he goes on, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Then it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. His time had not yet come. I remember being in Nazareth about 10 years ago, and a lot of things happened in Nazareth when I was there. <laughs> Side story. But uh, in Nazareth, we were on a, on a hill, and on a hill, we were looking out. And it was like the, the guide was like, hey, I don't know where it was, but this would have been a place that would have been common. That could have been the area where they're like, we're taking you out right here. We're pushing you down this hill. But what happened? Jesus is revealing to them that God has a heart for the outsider, that God had a heart for the Gentile. In the midst of Israel's rebellion, God was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And I love this because in Abraham's promise he received from God in Genesis 12. He says, you'll have a son, Abraham, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jewish ones, the Gentiles. And Elijah's ministry reminds us that there's a place for the outsider. There's a place for those that are apart. And I tell you, that ought to be good news for a bunch of people from Scottsboro, Alabama. Friend, the gospel came to us across the sea as a result of God's graciousness even revealed to this widow in Zarephath. And if God didn't have a heart for the widow in Zarephath, we better run and take cover. But the news of God showing compassion and empathy to the widow in Zarephath is a reminder that God loves the world. He has a heart for all. The final one. God not only sees the outsider, but through Elijah as a servant, God demonstrated his glory. And through Elijah, he demonstrated that he is a God who raises the dead. And you know what happens, I think, maybe from Sunday school in the past, but look at verse 17. And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill in his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid, on, laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. 
And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Through the life and ministry, you've got these two contrasts, don't you? You've got Ahab. He provokes the Lord to anger. He's only about his own way. But on the other side, you've got a man who, who trusts in the word of the Lord, who seeks to be a faithful servant, who by the grace of God is an empty vessel, who declares the word of God, who seeks to follow it, who seeks to trust it. And God is working powerfully through this man's life to display his glory and his character and his power. And this little boy is raised. And he's raised. And aren't you thankful that God demonstrates here in the Old Testament he's the God that raises the dead? He's the God who raises the dead. It's a forecast and a foreshadowing, you could say, of of how he's going to work and You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And how did he fulfill that? He fulfilled it. You know, in Isaiah 53, there's even a promise of the resurrection. And Jesus would not see decay. But after three days in that grave, he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead, demonstrating that he is the one who has power over death. He is the one who gives life. He's the resurrection and the life. And friend, because God raises the dead, he can resurrect my dead spiritual life. He can can resurrect your dead spiritual life. And do you realize that that's what salvation's all about? I've heard people say, you know, a guy gets up and says, hey, you know, I was was on drugs for nine years, and and then I came to Christ, and then the next person gets up who's been in church his whole life, and he goes, well, my testimony's not as profound. I'm like, no, buddy, yours has ever been as profound, because he was dead, he got raised, you were dead, and you got raised. And all of us can only experience salvation through the fact that God resurrects those who are spiritually dead and brings us to life. And because he's the God who raises the dead, he can resurrect his followers. He can resurrect his children one day in the future at the general resurrection. He can call them out of the grave. He can call them out of the tomb. Because he's the God who gives life and because he's the resurrection and the life, he's the God that can preserve our soul that we would be rescued from this body of sin and death, that literally to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, but yet one day God is faithful to even bring our bodies out of the grave. And Elijah was a witness to this. I love it. Paul in Philippians 3 says what? I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I love this. You realize that Paul was longing to know the resurrection power of Christ, and that same resurrection power is the power that rose this widow's son from the grave. So we look at this this morning. God uses Elijah to demonstrate God is glorified in calling vessels to show his power. God is supreme over all. God keeps his word. God meets our needs. God sees the outsider. God raises the dead. And this morning, by God's grace, could we pray, all of us, and say, God, would you help me to be willing 
to be an empty clay pot? To be an empty vessel? God, would you help me to see that it's not about my abilities? It's not about my influence? It's simply about being a vessel to take you at your word, to, again, receive my marching orders from you, to trust you. And then the miracle in this is that as his spirit works in us, I tell you, you may be thinking today, you don't understand, I don't have any influence. You may be thinking, I don't, I, I'm not anything. Well, well get in line. <laughs> Join the rest of us. The beauty is that God takes people from Tishbe, and he takes widows from Zarephath. And if there's room for them, friend, there's room for us. And by his grace, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what happens as a result? They give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for... I thank you, God, for your word. And I thank you, Lord, how it thrills our heart. And Lord, I thank you that you're kind and you're patient and you work even as we find ourselves stubborn and find ourselves doubting and find ourselves even toying with the same idols that those that don't even know you go after. Lord, your kindness leads us to yourself. And Lord, you show us a better way. And Lord, I thank you for this man, Elijah. I thank you that he's a man with a nature like ours. And I thank you, Lord, for how he was usable which points to your glorious grace. And I pray, Lord, today that you'd help us to see that you call us to, to walk with you and to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that we'd have humble hearts. We'd be thankful. And we would see the good news that it's only in Christ. It's only in you. It's only in your son. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.